Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic, The Vicar of Christ or Antichrist. This June 2008 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Robert Haddad is currently the director of the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine and lectures in Scripture and the Church at the University of Notre Dame, Sydney. I said, I whispered to Arlette before we actually started, I said, tonight, I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to break every rule that we normally have at Lumen Perum in the sense that I'm going to definitely run over time to give this as much as possible a comprehensive treatment. I am going to be doing too much reading um, and I'm going to leave you all confused at the end of that. <laughs> um, the reason for that, just as a bit of a, a preamble before we start the talk proper, is because um, no one agrees on what the book of Revelation actually says in its finest details. Whether you're reading Protestant or whether you're reading Catholic um, commentaries on that wonderful revelation, no one, uh, you wouldn't get three books that say exactly the same thing. And in dealing with this topic tonight, firstly understand I'm not giving an interpretation of the whole book of the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation as it's otherwise known. I'm not treating that. I'm just looking at certain parts of it that relate to figures such as the beast, the whore of Babylon, the beast slash antichrist, etc. That's what I'm focusing on primarily. And looking at this and looking at uh, two prominent Catholic positions, they don't agree either on the, on the final points. Um, my recommendation, I should say this at the end of the talk, when it comes to living out the book of the Apocalypse, my recommendation is that we live it out one day at a time, observing what we see around us now. And I know I'm reversing my talk and giving my conclusion at the beginning, but I'll probably repeat myself at the end. Don't be worried about the Antichrist coming sometime in the future. Worry about the Antichrists that have already come and that are doing their work and destruction now. Because that's what we're called to fight. When I first started um, being aware of these issues when I was just 15 years of age, it was a long time ago, people were talking about the Antichrist, the end of the world, the rapture, the second coming, all these things then. And as a young person who was struggling through high school and early years of university, it can be rather demoralising. You don't want to have a bunker mentality where you basically give up on the world and wait for the, you know, the spiritual big bangs and fireworks. Because I think that is also a snare of the devil, making us passive, inactive, uh, demoralised in the face of the current enemy, the current problems. If you think the Antichrist is a particular individual and you're worried about that, fair enough. But what about his spirit that's already operating in the world, that's doing enormous damage? You can't just sit back, fold your arms and not worry about those issues. Because that's what we're called to deal with. 
What did you do about abortion? What did you do about all these other issues? Pornography. I can go on forever, you know, what they are. Oh, I didn't do anything, Lord. I was just waiting for the Antichrist to come, but he never came during my lifetime. That's not a good enough excuse. I guess I just put that in first. Right? Because some people tend to be so worried about the Antichrist that's coming sometime in the future that we're not exactly certain when, you know, that we, we forget about the ones that are already rampaging all over the place and doing enormous damage to humanity. All right. Well, as you know, the Pope is coming very soon to Australia. It will be the fourth time a Pope has come to Australia. Paul VI in 1970, John Paul II in 86 and 95, and Pope Benedict, obviously, next month. Now, for Catholics, as I said in our advertisement that we emailed to everybody, this is normally a, a occasion for great joy. But for some people, it's a period of, uh, it's a moment of great trepidation. Because some people genuinely believe, sincerely believe, that the Pope is the Antichrist and that the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon. So this is, this is a threatening development. When I was very, very young, as I stood, when the Pope came out in 1970, I was too young to understand anything, really. Uh, seriously, that is. And, um, excuse me, I won't take the call. And uh, I remember someone saying, though, that, you know, I've got a friend of mine who doesn't like, who hates the Pope. Now, I was only six years of age at the time, and I was thinking, as a six-year-old, why would anyone hate the Pope? Didn't understand anything in those times. I actually didn't understand. Um, In 86, when the Pope came, the Christadelphians, if you don't know who they are, they're a breakaway from the Baptist Church in 1844 in the United States. they ran ads on public television warning us about the Pope and his false claims to authority. That only the Bible has authority. No Pope can claim authority over and above the Bible. Uh, which, of course, is not an accurate representation of the Pope's claims to authority. I wasn't in Australia when the Pope came in '95, so I can't elaborate anything there. But already you saw last week, for example, Philip Jensen from the Anglican... Uh, Diocese of Sydney saying that he won't be bothering to visit to greet the Pope uh, for his particular reasons being a good, solid, hardline Protestant who's still protesting and he's proud of that Uh, though the Anglicans in this diocese as far as I know never go around and I've never met one at Sydney University or elsewhere who go around espousing that the Pope's the Antichrist they don't agree with the Pope certainly by no means do they agree with the Pope and his authority. Okay? Um, but I don't think they actually go around saying that he is the Antichrist. Though there might be individuals who say that. I've certainly met enough individuals who have said that, that the Pope is the Antichrist. When I was in high school, a Pentecostal friend of mine named Mark was saying he was the Antichrist. We know that because he sits on a particular throne, and the Antichrist is mentioned in the Bible as sitting on a particular throne. A uh, friend of mine, ex-Lebanese Maronite, he became another Pentecostal in 1994, was arguing ferociously with me that 
Certainly John Paul II was the Antichrist, without a doubt, because he had been shot and wounded. And if you read the book of the Apocalypse, the, the Antichrist is someone who recovers from a serious wound. So John Paul II was the Antichrist. By strange coincidence, I never met him again until 12 years, uh, 11 years later, the very day that John Paul II died, was the day I met him again. I didn't confront him because he was, he was a train attendant at Punchbowl Station. I didn't want to raise the argument. But I was thinking if I had a bit more courage, I would have said, do you still think that the Pope is the Antichrist? The, him, John Paul II. Not the Pope in general, but John Paul II himself was the Antichrist. Anyway, I've met other people who certainly believe he has, and they normally would produce chick publications and comics of that nature to reinforce that truth. Uh, I'm going to have a look at one author, an evangelical American named Dave Hunt, and, what, and his proofs for why he believes the Pope is the Antichrist. I'm going to spend much of this talk rebutting his proofs. I'm going to look at the arguments that have been put forward by that American Catholic apologetic organisation, Catholic Answers. I'm also going to have a look at another Catholic opinion espoused in this book, which has been recently released by the American Catholic apologist Robertson Jennis, the Catholic Apologetic Study Bible series on this volume on the Apocalypse. They don't exactly agree. But then again, as I said already, not everyone does. Very few people actually do agree on the finer point of trying to interpret this very cryptic spiritual book. All right. What do we know from Scripture concerning the Antichrist? We don't know an enormous amount, but we've got some vital information that's important. And actually, I could finish this talk in ten minutes by, by not even referring to the book of Revelation. When it comes to the Antichrist and the beast, most people are focused on what St. John the Apostle records in the book of Revelation, which is fair enough. But actually, the more specific information about the Antichrist comes from the same man, St. John, not in his book of Revelation, but in his smaller epistles, which generally, not deliberately, I can't say that about other people and their intentions but it seems like those quotes are never on the radar when trying to discern the core belief of why the Antichrist is the Antichrist what makes him the Antichrist and what is the spirit of Antichrist that John refers to in those smaller epistles apart from the book of Revelation what, we, what exegetes real but biblical scholars not myself a rank amateur who just cannibalizes uh, other people's work. But what the biblical experts try to do is marry the two. What St. John says in his smaller epistles and what St. John says, or what's revealed to him is recorded in the book of Revelation. Plus what St. Paul says in his letter to the Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, and try and get a picture. Now the battle is here in trying to understand the book of Revelation is how far can we go literally and how much of it is symbolic. And I would, normally when it comes to biblical interpretation, as, as the Catholic Church understands it, as St. Thomas Aquinas taught, normally the first port of call with biblical interpretation is to look at the literal in understanding of the words. 
Then before we move on to any other sense of scripture, allegorical, moral, anagogical, I won't go into explaining them necessarily. Uh, But I would suggest, as my amateur opinion, that actually it's the reverse for the book of Revelation. You presume a spiritual, mystical interpretation before you actually uh, try and propose a an interpretation that's based on the literal reading. You know, I'll give you one example. When you read in the book of the Apocalypse a figure of a giant man standing on one landmass and his other leg on another landmass and in between is a great ocean, you know, you're not going to take that literally as some gigantic figure that can one human person that can span nations with his two legs. It obviously means something um, Perhaps just guessing here, perhaps a force, a power, an ideology, a philosophy that has encompassed nations, for example. That's, that's an example of what I'm trying to say here. All right. Four specific mentions of the Antichrist in St. John's smaller epistles. Here they are. In 1 John 2.18 and 22, 1 John 4.3, 2 John 7. We'll read them. 1 John 2, 18 and 19, quote, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so so now many Antichrists have come. For him this was evidence that the the, the main man was soon to arrive, because his precursors were already obvious in the world. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they are not from of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. 1 John 2, 22-23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. 1 John 4, 3. Every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you heard that it was coming, and now it is in the world already. And finally, 2 John 7, we read, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, Men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So putting this together, what do we gather was in the mind of St. John when writing these smaller epistles about the core apostate belief of this individual figure? Uh, One, that Jesus was a mere man and not God incarnate, as in the early heresy known as Ebionism, which was contemporary with St. John. Two, that the humanity of Jesus was only an illusion, as in the early heresy of Dicetism, which believed that Jesus' body was no real body, just a phantom, had the appearance of a body. Or three, that Jesus was not the Messiah, as in non-Christian Judaism. Now, I could end the talk here by saying, look, the Catholic Church holds none of these false beliefs. 
historically and traditionally and consistently has condemned them all with St. John. No Pope, no Bishop of Rome has ever held such beliefs about Jesus Christ. In fact, quite the opposite. The formal dogmatic teachings of the Catholic Church emanating from all those early councils of Nicaea 1, Constantinople 1, Ephesus, I'm putting this in chronological order, Chalcedon, uh, Constantinople 2, Constantinople 3, these councils from the year 325 to 680 are all dogmatic, that made dogmatic pronouncements which were then all ratified by the Bishop of Rome concerning the very person of Christ. In these creeds we have a condemnation of all sorts of heresies that are mentioned here. The Gnostic heresies that denied that God was one and almighty and creator of heaven and earth. The Arian heresy that denied that Jesus Christ was true God and true man. The Macedonian heresy that denied that Jesus was, sorry, that the Holy Spirit was divine. Um, the Nestorian heresy that denied, that, well, that taught that Jesus was two persons and not one divine person. Uh, the Monophysite heresy that taught that Jesus was just one nature and not two natures, God and man. And those councils were reaffirmed at 2nd and 3rd Constantinople. These teachings are in absolute rock-solid theological stone that could never be reversed. Now, why am I saying this? Well, no pope has ever attempted to reverse them. No pope can reverse them. Contrary to what some might sincerely believe, the Pope does not invent doctrine or change doctrine. As in the case of these councils and all dogmatic pronouncements of church councils afterwards or papal dogmatic pronouncements, they are, really, they are essentially de definitions or developments of existing teaching, developments in our understanding of existing teaching. The church wasn't inventing the divinity of Christ in these councils or the divinity of the Holy Spirit, making formal pronouncements that are binding for all time. Now, hypothetically, if a pope was to come into the future and say, we got it wrong, Jesus is only a man. Jesus is not true God and true man. Well, Jesus never truly had came in the, in the flesh that he started to pronounce heresies in line with what St John is condemning in these smaller epistles, then he is no longer Catholic. He is a heretic. Period. No one says that, from our Catholic perspective, that Luther and Calvin, when they, when they taught their teachings that departed from Catholic teaching, were still Catholic. No one goes around saying that the Catholics started the Reformation. Because they don't consider Calvin and Luther to be Catholics. Yet they were once before they changed their teachings and went their particular ways. Same with, hypothetically, just imagine, I'm not saying this is going to be the case, I'm just saying, putting this argument out there, if a Pope in the future was to deny the divinity of Christ, that Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh, well, he wouldn't be Catholic. So if he's the Antichrist, he's not Antichrist for being a Catholic. He's being anti he's Antichrist for rejecting Catholic teaching. 
And so us as Catholics would be right and proper to resist to his faith and deny him utterly. And there'll be all sorts of theological debates as to whether he's still legitimately Pope or not, but that's another issue altogether. But he wouldn't be Antichrist for being Catholic. He'd be Antichrist for denying dogmatic Catholic teaching. Okay, a dogma is a formal solemn pronouncement by the church that a certain teaching has been revealed by God and period cannot change. So I could end the talk there and say that no Catholic is the Antichrist. Because anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is not a Catholic. Okay, but we need to look at it more specifically, certain claims. When you go on to do a Google search on the Antichrist, you'll get 13 million hits. So that's what I got about three weeks ago when I first prepared this talk. Then there are a lot of videos on YouTube you can click up on, you know, which give all sorts of evidence as to why the Pope of Rome is the Antichrist. And they give 11 reasons, or um, I'll show you 10 reasons tonight why Dave Hunt thinks he's the Antichrist. And then they say, for one man to satisfy all these 11 reasons, it'll be one in five trillion chance. So that's, you know, those odds are astronomical. The Pope has to be the Antichrist. Period. Because he satisfies all these points. And to be the Antichrist, he has to satisfy all these points. Not 9 out of 10 or 10 out of 11. 11 out of 11. And there's all sorts of little reasons as well. I'll give you one little reason. Because I didn't mention this in my talk, but I remember that when I watched one of these videos on YouTube, the Pope's the Antichrist because if you look at his... one of the thrones that he sits on, there's a cross in the back of it, which is upside down. Now that is the symbol of the Satanists. Put forward seriously, I know some of you are giggling, but it's seriously, and this scares people. I know of one case where a person left the church because of this scare tactic. The Pope is the Antichrist, you know it. Look at behind on his throne, he has an upside down cross, and that's the symbol of Satanists against Christ. What a disrespectful symbol, or what a disrespectful way of having the cross. It can only be something sinister. Okay. How long have been Satanists been using that symbol? The Catholic Church has been using that symbol since time immemorial. Of course there's an upside-down cross behind the Pope on one of his thrones. Because that upside-down cross is the symbol of St. Peter. Just the same as an X is the symbol of St. Andrew. Because tradition has always taught, and you look at the flag of Scotland, which has adopted this tradition, the cross of St. Andrew is in an X shape because that's what we believe. St. Andrew, he was crucified in that position while in Greece, in a star shape, with legs and arms apart. Well, the, the only valid, the only viable tradition that's out there that fulfills the prophecy of our Lord in John 21 concerning the future of St. Peter, when he said that you'll be taken, when you're an old man and you'll be tired and you'll be taken to a place where you don't want to go and you'll die a glorious, glorious death that will glorify the Father, the only traditions that are out there says that it happened in Rome and that he was crucified and that he was crucified upside down. And that's all it is, that upside down cross is the cross of St. Peter. And it's totally legitimate for the Bishop of Rome claiming, at least consistent with his claim, that he's a successor to St. Peter. 
There's nothing sinister about it at all. Okay. Inferring other antichrists elsewhere in Scripture. The four passages given above are all that the New Testament has to say about the antichrist by name antichrist. At least under that name. But many have identified the Antichrist with the beast from the sea in Revelation 13, with the man of lawlessness that Paul mentions in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. These identifications are reasonable, but must be understood with some nuance. The beast from the sea that John speaks of in Revelation is best understood in its initial literal fulfilment as one of the early Roman emperors. Now, this is where we get really delicate here. Catholic answers are saying the beast is best understood as one of the Roman emperors. But here we get into a particular science of biblical interpretation called diachronic interpretation. Diachronic interpretation means that you can look at a particular verse and it can have two meanings. And you do see that in the book of Revelation. I'll give you a specific example later. Where the seven hills are also seven kings. Okay? So that's diachronic. One symbol means two things. Uh, the Catholic answer says, best understood as one of the Roman emperors, and certainly one of the Roman emperors, fulfills all the requirements as stated in the book of Revelation. Robertson Genes here in his book focuses exclusively that that figure in Revelation 13 is definitely a figure still to come in the future. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church says that as well. But it's not wrong to, to hold both views. That Nero, for example, was an antichrist. And the book of Revelation could be referring to him as a literal historical figure in one time in history, but he also represents a, a, in type another one in the future, which would be even worse. Okay? And both figures fulfill the requirements the, the pointers that St. John speaks of in Revelation. So basically, Catholic answers would be looking at, uh, at contemporary fulfillments in the time of St. John when he writes. St. Genis looks at more future fulfillments that are yet to come. And you can marry the two together, understanding diachronic interpretation. All right. Yet there are often multiple fulfillments of a single prophecy and the beast may also point forward to an individual at the end of time who will be very much like the early Roman emperors. Such an individual is easy to identify with St Paul's man of lawlessness for he appears to be a still future individual who does things like the Roman emperors. Paul states that he will one day manifest himself in the temple of God which to a first century Jew would mean the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and demand to be worshipped as a god. This is related to things the Roman emperors did themselves, such as Caligula, after he began claiming to be a god, attempted to have an image of himself put in the Jerusalem temple, a historic event, only averted through the inter, uh, intervention the, the Jewish authorities the Sanhedrin authorities, pushed Herod Agrippa I to push, to push Caligula not to do this. Okay? And it was forestalled. Since the many antichrists are identified, identifiable by John in his small epistles as apostate Christians, the future individual antichrist may also be an apostate Christian or from an apostate family, people or nation. That is, used to be Christian, but then 
will not be. Alright. What do the church fathers say here? Likewise, church fathers like modern contemporaries, commentators, would have some points of agreement and some points of disagreement. How would we sum them up generally? Although the fathers of the church speculated on the Antichrist in various ways, they would not have agreed on all points. They showed the temple to be the Jewish temple, rebuilt by Antichrist in Jerusalem. And there was one attempt to rebuild it during the time of the emperor Julian the Apostate, who was Christian in his upbringing but renounced it, assumed pagan religions again, tried to create a universal syncretistic pagan religion in rivalry to Christianity, and to, to refute the claims of Christ, attempted to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem around the year 361-362. He only reigned for two years as emperor. Okay. And in, if some of the historical accounts at that time shows that when that was happening, those radical natural movements of the earth, earthquakes, the earth opening up, and all sorts of things happening to prevent this work continuing. Okay. Rather than the Bishop of Rome, the early church fathers identified the Antichrist as a government official, a king coming to power in the ruins of the Roman Empire. He would probably be Jewish, possibly from the tribe of Dan, and most importantly, rather than claiming like the Pope to be the vicar or emissary of Jesus Christ, he would claim that Jesus was not the Christ, but that he was instead. He would then seduce many of the Jewish people by attempting to fulfill the political aspirations they held for the Messiah. Throughout history, there have been a large number of individuals who have been identified as potential antichrists, particularly when you're looking at the number of the beast, 666, which we'll look at that later. You know, try and get their names and fit it in, you know. Look at the numerical values of the letters of their names. You know, people like Arius, Muhammad, Hitler, Stalin, you know, pamphlets that even Richard Nixon some thought was the Antichrist. And such they may have been Antichrist in themselves, in their actions, in their beliefs. Well certainly, Arius and Muhammad fulfill essential criteria of St John in his small epistles, deny that the Son of God came in the flesh. Certainly, I mean, Arius had certain strange views, as we know, but he certainly denied that Jesus Christ was true God and true man. Muhammad outrightly denied that God came in the flesh, period. <clears throat> However, the record of inaccurate in attempts to identify the Antichrist revealed the extreme... You were listening to Robert Haddad discussing the topic the Vicar of Christ or Antichrist for Lumen Verum Apologetics on cradio.org.au Exercise in such matters, even today. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, which speaks officially for us, explains simply that there will be a, quote, supreme religious deception before the second coming of Christ and that the supreme form of this deception is that of the Antichrist who will bring a, quote, pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. So the Catechism is focusing essentially on St. John's criteria for the Antichrist in his small epistles. Uh, this deception has precursors in their own time. 
including, quote, intrinsically perverse political form of secular messianism that was displayed by 20th century movements such as Nazism and Communism, which was certainly anti-Christ. And many at the time, many fundamentalists in the United States saw Hitler as the Antichrist, saw Mussolini as his false prophet, and saw the Catholic Church as an alliance with them as the whore. The deception of the Antichrist will lead to the final crisis of the Church, which will be persecuted almost to the point of extinction, and thus will, quote, this is paragraph 677, I didn't mention the paragraphs, the first quote was from 675, this is paragraph 677, quote, follow her Lord in his death and resurrection, only to be saved by the second coming of Christ. Now, let's have a look at the charge that the Pope is the Antichrist. This charge was a psychological necessity for the early Protestant leaders because they were in the process of breaking away from what their contemporaries recognised as the authentic Church of Christ, governed by the authentic Vicar of Christ. Since breaking with such a body was inconceivable to most at the time, it was necessary for Protestant leaders to deny that the Catholic Church and the Pope were these things. If it's not the Bride of Christ, then what is it? How can it be explained otherwise? Would be logical questions. A Protestant leaders cast about in Scripture for alternative explanations for a large, false religious system expected to exist during the Christian age. They chose the religious system associated with the beast from Revelation, whom they identified as the Antichrist. So that's, there's a, they equated the beast with the Antichrist. Now, the book of Revelation doesn't say the beast is the Antichrist, okay, but most people are equating them, as we do in this talk as well. The Antichrist is mentioned only by name in St. John's small epistles. We identify him as the same figure as the beast in Revelation. They further identified this religious system with the whore of Babylon, who in Revelation is in contrast to the church, the bride of Christ. To ensure that the prophecies of the Antichrist fit the Pope, some even claim that the temple of God, in which the Antichrist pretends to be God, in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, is the Vatican. They thus came to portray the church as the whore of Babylon, and the Pope as the beast Antichrist. Only in such a way could breaking away from what everyone recognised as a true church was uh, could be psychologically justified. Thus we read in the Lutheran Book of Concord, which states, quote, The Pope is the real Antichrist, who has raised himself over and set himself against Christ. Accordingly, just as we cannot adore the devil himself as our Lord or God, so we cannot suffer his apostle, the Pope, or Antichrist, to govern us as our head or Lord. That's the Schmacaldic Articles 2, 4, and 10, 14. The Presbyterian Westminster Confession states, quote, There is no other head of the Church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be the head thereof. That but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, the son of perdition, that exalteth himself in the church against Christ, 
and all that is called God, 25.6. In his tract, Hunting the Whore of Babylon, fundamentalist Dave Hunt puts forward nine arguments, I'll add one to those nine, given for his claim that the Catholic Church is the Whore of Babylon in Revelation 17.18. What we'll do now... What, would, what I should have the whiteboard here, I didn't bring it out, I'm sorry. But, oh, but is Hunt a Presbyterian? No, he's, I'm not sure exactly. But he's a very famous author, he's sold millions of books in the United States. I've got one of them at home, but not that particular book. Um, what we'll do, we'll focus now here on whether the Catholic Church is the whore. That's a subcategory to the issue of whether the Pope is the Antichrist. Okay? Pope, Antichrist is one particular focal point. Catholic Church whore is another. Let's look at the arguments that um, Dave Hunt puts us to why the Catholic Church is the whore of Babylon. Okay, Revelation 17, chapter 17, 1 to 6. This passage tells us several things about the whore, or the harlot. Those words, different translations would use a slightly different word. Whore, harlot. One, she is an international power. Since she sits on seven hills and on many waters, 1715. Two, she has committed fornication with the kings of the earth, and she has inflamed the dwellers on earth with her fornication. Three, she is connected with the seven-headed beast from Revelation 13110. So in your mind, connect there is a connection. The whore is connected with the beast. So the Catholic Church is connected with the Pope. The Pope being the beast, the Antichrist. Natural connection. Four, the woman is dressed in royal colour purple. Five, the woman is rich. For she is bedecked with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. Six, she is symbolically known as Babylon, mother of harlots. Seven, she is a central cause of abominations in the land. Abominations being a reference to practices, especially religious practices, that are offensive to God. And eight, she persecutes Christians, quote, the saints and martyrs of Jesus. Now, that's the whore. Let's now look at the beast from Revelation 13. Go back four chapters, Revelation 13, the beast slash antichrist. 13, 1 to 10. It has seven heads. Which, are told, which we are told are both seven mountains, that's 17.9, and seven kings who reign sequentially, 17.10. See, there's a diachronic interpretation. Something that means two things at the same time. The beast considered as a person is specifically identified as one in this line of kings. So the beast is one of these seven kings, that's 17.10. Further, he compels people to worship on pain of martyrdom. And his mark is 666, which is the number of a man. Now that's even disputed. What does the Greek mean there, the number of a man? St. Genesis goes on, it's very detailed about that. Because he actually interprets the word anthropu as the number of men, or uh, not the number of a man. So there's all debate about how to, and it was quite specific here. If I could have a, yeah, he's got it here. I'll probably read it later, not right now. Okay. As I said, it is very complex. All right. 
Now let's look at the arguments that Dave Hunt puts forward now to show how the Catholic Church fulfills Revelation 17 to be the whore. And what I'll do here, I'll act out, I'll be Dave Hunt. Okay? So I'm going to be passionate in advocating why the Catholic Church is the whore. And, you're going to, and why I'm going to do this is because this is what many Catholics who are really weak in their faith, don't know scripture, are confronted with and they've put forward this picture in front of them and many are terrified and they see it, oh it's so obvious, it's true, why didn't I know, it is the whore and all that. happened once I went to, I was asked to go somewhere out west, the Seventh-day Adventist fellow were, was giving a series of talks over many weeks, it's all relating to how the Catholic Church was the whore and and I was asked to go there and he was in the last phases of it and one woman had left who was Catholic, she left, she was crying because it all sounded so convincing and it can be so convincing when put in a nice package. All right. The Seven Hills, one. Now, instead of Hunt, I'll say myself, I. I argue that the whore is a city built on seven hills which is identified obviously with Rome because Rome is the city built on seven hills everyone knows that from history okay so the church of Rome there's the first proof that it's the hall because the church of Rome is of Rome and Rome is built on seven hills the argument is based on Revelation 17:9 which states that the woman sits on seven mountains. Two, reigns over kings. The angel reveals that the woman is that great city, the whore is that great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Where has there been such a city? Well, the Catholic Church did. For most of its history, the Catholic Church had political domination over nations. One example, you look at Boniface VIII, brings out an encyclical, Unum Sanctum Ecclesia, in 1302, which sums it all up. That the Pope can judge all, even kings. So the Church of Rome has political power over kings, over nations. Which other religious institution has that or had it? Three, commits fornication. The woman is called a whore with whom earthly kings have committed fornication. The whore is Vatican City. Why? How many unholy alliances has, had, has the Catholic Church had with nations over the, over the centuries? One clear example, the concordat between the Church of Rome and Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. Pius XII, before he was Pope, he was um, Secretary of State and he had spent time in Germany and he had, then they had this uh, evil agreement with the most evil regime in the 20th century. They're hand in hand together. One example of the fornication of this whore with the nations of the earth. We can go on all, all other treaties if you want to mention them. But that's the most recent in our times. Four, clothed in purple and scarlet. Well, what more do you need? Look at the Catholic clergy, what they're dressed in. Purple archbishops. 
scarlet cardinals? Did I say any more? See, even the Catholic Encyclopedia tells us that bishops wear certain purple vestments and cardinals wear certain red vestments. The whore admits it itself, right out of its own mouth. Possesses great wealth. <laughs> it's obvious. Richest church in the world. Look at its wealth everywhere. You look at a map of Europe in the 14th century, you look at all the church lands, all coloured in one particular colour. The church owned at least one third of the land in Europe before the Reformation liberated all that land and gave it to the people. Right? And even despite those losses, the Catholic Church has enormous wealth today worldwide. Not just the Vatican, accumulate all the wealth of the Catholic Church everywhere. It's enormous. A golden cup. Huh. Well, you see it everywhere. There's a golden cup in every Catholic church when they have their blasphemous mass. It's full of abominations because they claim it to be the blood of Christ. It's only meant to be a symbol. It's not really the blood of Christ. We know that. The mass is a blasphemy and, and, and it's, and it's pri primarily carried out and the symbol of it. There it is, the golden chalice in every Catholic church and every mass. Babylon the Great. Ah, the, the hall would be a city known as Babylon. This is based on Revelation 17.5, which says that her name is Babylon the Great. The phrase Babylon the Great in Greek, Babylon Amegala, occurs five times in Revelation. It's obvious that in the book of Revelation and St. Peter's epistle identifies Babylon with the city of Rome. Doesn't Peter say in 1 Peter 3 at the end there that he's with Mark, sends their greetings from Babylon? Code word for Rome. Catholic Church is the Church of Rome. Point number seven, tick number seven. Ah, mother of harlots. Well, uh, John's attention is next drawn to the inscription on the woman's forehead. The mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. How, where, how is this harlotry and, abomina and these abominations practiced? Look at the sexual immorality of the Catholic clergy. It's everywhere. No Catholic can go by a week without seeing some scandal somewhere. Really. United States is one example. Billions being paid out for the known sexual scandals. What about the ones we don't know? It's all the cause of the unscriptural teaching of celibacy. Enforced celibacy on, on the clergy is responsible for all these sexual sins. This is the cause of a harlotry which is worldwide. Shed the blood of saints. Whatever figure you want, anywhere between 50 and 95 million martyrs for Jesus were spilled by the Catholic Church during its persecutions. Any good old-fashioned Seventh-day Adventist Bible will tell you that. Uh, the Inquisition, uh, the persecution of Catholics under Mary in England, just by Fox's Book of Martyrs, wonderful accounts of all the holy martyrs against the Catholic Church, particularly those who resisted the blasphemy of the Mass. It's all there. Inquisition lasted 340 years before we finally broke the power of that evil institution. 
Uh, and the tenth one uh, that I add, uh, besides the other, besides inquisitions, forced conversions, the Nazi Holocaust. The Nazi Holocaust was a direct result of Catholic anti-Semitism. Saw millions put to death again because of Catholic false Catholic, racist, anti-Semitic teaching. And vicarious filia dei. Well, the, the, the beast has the number 666, and that's the, that is the Pope's number, and we know that because one of his official titles is vicari- in Latin, vicarious filia dei. And when we look at those words in Latin, and we take the letters that also have numerical value, like L for 50, V for 5, D for 500, C for 100. You add that up, Vicar of the Son of God, Vicarious Filia Dei is 666. You find it on his one of his papal tiaras, period. End of the story. We've just wrapped it up. The chances of any institution having satisfying all, all 10, and it has to be all 10, can't be 9 out of 10, all 10 of these requirements is in the trillions to 1. has to be the Catholic Church. So I'll hand out the Chick publications and at the back page of the Chick publications, come out of her, come out of her now and go find an authentic Bible-believing church and leave this hall before it's too late for your own salvation because you will be damned. Trust me. All right. Okay, we'll finish up there and go now. No. All right. Now, I could tell, I could feel the vibe when I was giving that, and I wasn't giving it as impassionately as some others would, because those who really, really believe it would give it with much more gusto than even I did. But I even felt that some of you went a lot, became sombre and very quiet and worried looks on your face as I polled this evidence one by one. Okay? And you want to hear the responses. Well, they better be good. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you a couple more before we start. Now, I'll have to refer to St. Genis and be long-winded in reading some extracts out of him just to give you a, a second interpretation which would be helpful. Because Catholic Answers seems to get focused primarily on looking at the Book of Revelation as being largely fulfilled, but not entirely, but largely fulfilled in the time of St. John and writing, and its writing. Okay? The Seven Hills... This is the response. Continuing Revelation, the angel begins to explain to John the woman's symbolism. This calls for a mind with wisdom. This is seven, Revelation 17, 9-10. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen already by the time of St. John. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain only a little while. Here scripture tells us that the heads refer both to seven mountains and seven kings, meaning the symbol has multiple fulfillments, diachronic. This passage gives us one reason why the Catholic Church cannot be the whore. We are told that the heads are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen already before the time of St. John. One is, the other has not yet come. If five of these kings had fallen in John's day, 
and one of them was still in existence, then the whore must have existed in John's day. Yet Christian Rome and Vatican City did not. However, pagan Rome did have a line of emperors, and the majority of commentators see this as the line of kings to which 1710 refers. Five of these emperors are referred to as, a, as has already fallen. Nero, Galba, Vitellus, Vespasian, Titus. This is just one interpretation. I'll give you St. Genesis 1. I tend to more favour St. Genesis 1. One is still reigning in John's time, Domitian, and another is yet to come, perhaps Trajan, who followed. Since Jerusalem had no such line of kings in the first century, this gives us evidence that the beast, though not the whore, the beast is pagan Rome. Also, the mountains could be a reference to Rome. I don't deny it, I say it is. Even if we grant that the reference is to Rome, which Rome are we talking about? Pagan Rome or Christian Rome? As we will see, ancient pagan Rome sat on seven hills. Which were the seven hills? The Aventine, Caelian, Capitoline, Esquiline, Palatine, Quirinal and Viminal. These hills were on the east side of the Tiber River. The Catholic Church's headquarters is on Vatican Hill, not one of these seven, on the western side of the Tiber River. Now, if we want to be specific, if you want to be literalist, and Dave Hunt tends to be literalist, the seven hills refer to those seven mountains that pagan Rome has built, and the city built on those seven hills is the hall. Well, the Vatican's not built on those seven hills. It's built on its own hill. Okay, what does... St. Genesis say here about the hills, let me just, the kings okay spare me, forgive me for reading what he says, it's going to take a few minutes but I think you'll appreciate it if it confuses you, fine, because as I said, there's no official 100% interpretation out there by anybody, Catholic or Protestant or anyone, this is the official, absolute interpretation of the book of Revelation we're in a period in time when we're free to offer our own interpretation and see how it pans out day to day. This is what St. Genesis says. Mountains, that is the seven hills, mountains are employed in the imagery because they are big, majestic and imposing objects on the face of the earth. They, for all intents and purposes, are unmovable. So that the beast is a very powerful force represented by unmovable mountains. For all, they, for all intents and purposes, are unmovable. Kings are employed because it is commonly known that they have absolute rule over their subjects. So the beast is big, powerful, with absolute ruling power. No one but another king could take away a king's power. Heads are employed, remember? Seven kings, seven heads. Because it is with the head that one devises his strategy and schemes. Horns because these heads also have horns, are used to represent power, as in the horns of rhinoceros or bull charging its opponent. Seven is employed because it is the anti-Christian numerical counterpart to God's seven. The number seven is associated with those divine consistent, things divine consistently in the apocalypse. Now what about the five kings past, one present, one in the future? So St. Genesis is a very interesting interpretation, which is... In, you're entirely open to be sympathetic with. 
In other words, the five kings that are passed when John is recording the revelation for St. Genesis represent all of Satan's power in Old Testament times. From his victory in the Garden of Eden until the time he was defeated at the cross. Which, depending on how one understands the genealogies, could encompass anywhere between four and 11,000 years. That's a side point. Five shows us that it was a relatively long period of time, whereas the remaining two kings show us that the time from show us that the time from Christ to the end of time is shorter. This is why the Apocalypse 12:12 12, 12 says the devil knows he is but a short time. The one king that exists in John's time represents the rulers of the beast from the cross until just before the second coming of Christ. And logically, the other yet to come in the future represents the rulers reigning when Satan is loosed for his little while in Apocalypse 23, a period in which he must remain only a little while, Apocalypse 17.10. For New Testament calibrations, there is no discrepancy in having just two kings representing the whole time from the cross until Judgment Day, since it is the very reason why this period of time is called the last days. Alright, that's his interpretation of the five past, one present, one still to come. The ten horns. Now we're answering... Um, Dave Hunt again here. The angel also interprets for John the meaning of the beast's ten horns. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. But they are to receive authority as kings for one hour. See, you know why you can't take this literally. They are to receive authority as kings for one hour. Okay, that's not realistic. It's, yes. Robert, are you going to deal with how many posts they have known up until... St. John oh, well, at the time of St. John, there would have been, well, according to Catholic chronology, St. Peter, Linus, Cletus, Clement, Maximum. Now, you're not going to say Peter was one of the uh, mountains, the heads, you know, one of the kings, and put him in, you know, associate him with the beast. I don't think we can do that. Do you agree? There's only four up until the time of St. John, bishops of Rome. Okay? That's a good point. Could there have been five bishops of Rome up to the time of John? No, there were only four, and one of them St. Peter, and you're not going to ally him with the beast. It's too long, about All right. Uh, Okay, well, I'll just read this again, sorry. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority of, of, as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind and give their power over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So here we see clearly that the beast is a political power in alliance with other smaller powers in a unity. Now when I was, you know, in the late 70s, early 80s, literature I was reading was, was identifying this with the European community. Great. I mean, look, there were 10 countries in the European community at this time. Formed by what? The Treaty of Rome. 
1957. It's what you read in Hal Lindsay's late great planet Earth, which came out in 1969. You know, all fit in beautifully. Right? This power, going to be a political power, going to persecute the, the true <coughs> believers in Jesus, and it's going to be yeah, in, animated by a false religion. It's Europe and the Catholic faith persecuting the real Christians. This shows us that the beast is allied with ten lower rulers and with their own territories. Some fundamentalists uh, determined on making this apply to modern times and the Catholic Church have argued that the horns refer to the European community and a revived Roman Empire with the Catholic Church at its head. The problem is that there are ten kings but now there's more than 10 nations as part of the European Union. And I'm not no friend of the European Union, but there's closer to 30 now than there were 10. Now, see, Dave Hunt can't have his cake and eat it. He can't give the Book of Revelation a literalist interpretation to ram the Catholic Church in as the whore and the beast and the antichrist. And then, you know run away from a literalist interpretation when it doesn't suit him. If he's going to argue from a literal point of view, it is legitimate to uh, rebut from a literal interpretation. So if you're saying that the Ten Kings is the European Union because it has ten countries, well, the European Union doesn't have ten countries. It's more than that now. However, what we are told about the horns does fit one of the other candidates we have for the whore. Now we look at the whole. We're trying to argue, Catholic Answers argues that the beast is pagan Rome. They then argue that the whore is apostate Jerusalem, Jerusalem that rejected Jesus. The angel tells John, quote, And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the harlot, that's the whore, they will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and giving over their royal power to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. So what we have here in Revelation 17, 16, 17 is that there will come a time when the beast will devour the whore. Okay? The image is the whore rides the beast, okay? Hunt saying that the beast is the Antichrist, the Pope, and the whore is the Catholic Church. Catholic Answers is saying that the beast is the Roman imperial power, and the whore is apostate Jerusalem, who can ride, one rides on top of the other in their alliance persecuting the early church, the time of St. John principally before. But then Revelation says, in 17, 16 to 17, that the beast is going to turn on the whore and devour it. And Capaganza says, when does that happen? When Rome annihilates Israel in the war of AD 66 to 70. When you had, the, you had the uprising of the Jews in the Jewish war, and then Rome comes down, led by Vespasian and then Titus, and consumes and annihilates it and destroys the temple. Okay, if I read it here, if the whore is Jerusalem and the beast is Rome, with the ten horns as vassal states, see Rome as an empire with all its provinces 
can be seen as the vassal states, then the prophecy makes perfect sense. The alliance between the two and persecuting Christians broke down in AD 66-70 when Rome and its allied forces conquered Israel and then destroyed, sacked and burned Jerusalem, just as Jesus has prophesied in Luke 21. So what Rome did to Jerusalem can fulfill these words, make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Guarantee you, that's exactly what happened to apostate Jerusalem. Reigns over kings. To assert that the Vatican has international political power over other nations is not serious. Now let's get serious here. You don't use Catholic political power from the medieval period and say that's proof that she's the, the beast or the whore. The Pope, the beast, the Catholic, just the whore. Because if, you, if you're going to be literalist and say that this applies to the end times, the last days, the last 20 years before the coming of Christ, the last seven years, the Antichrist reigns three and a half years just before the coming of Christ. If you're going to focus on that period, what you're going to focus on now, what political power does the Catholic Church have now? Zero. In Europe, zero. No one takes the Catholic Church's political power in any country seriously. The Pope has zero political power over any monarch, parliament, president, prime minister today. Go out there and survey any leader, which uh, George Bush or Brown in Britain, Sarkozy in France, Mugabe in Zimbabwe, Okay, are you subject to political authority or any influence politically from the Church of Rome? Absolutely not. Zero. It doesn't apply. The Church only has a limited moral influence only among her faithful. Politicians are worried about the power of the Catholic Church. It's only to, to make sure they can seduce Catholic votes at the next election. Not because Rome has any power whatsoever. Look at the new European Constitution. So the Catholic Church is going to be animating the European community. There's a deliberate rejection of all reference to Christianity, the Catholic Church, God, Jesus, from the preamble of the European Constitution. The Popes, particularly John Paul II, protested this. The Eastern Orthodox protested this. They didn't care. Ignored. If you want any proof that the Catholic Church has no political power whatsoever in Europe, there it is. And the preamble says, we take our inspiration from where? The, the philosophers of the ancient world, of the classical age. Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. And the Enlightenment. So from 5th century BC, there's a big gap in the middle left out. It's called Christianity, Christendom, Catholic Church. And the Enlightenment is the next period of inspiration from the 18th century onwards. So where's the Catholic Church in all this, animating and influencing this beast? Zero. Absolutely zero. <clears throat> Commits fornication. Hunt admits that the prophets often referred to Jerusalem as a spiritual whore, suggesting that the whore might be apostate Jerusalem. Ancient pagan Rome also fits the description. Since through the cult... Now, this is the... You are listening to Robert Haddad discussing the topic, The Vicar of Christ or Antichrist, for Lumen Verum Apologetics on cradio.org.au.
whole. This is what the fornication is. If you want it from Catholic answer's point of view, that this the fornication that the whore and its daughters engage in, the whorish behaviour, is is the exporting of emperor worship to all its subject peoples. Ancient pagan Rome also fits the description, since through the cult of emperor worship, it also committed spiritual fornication with the kings of the earth, those nations it conquered. Hunt also confuses Vatican City with the city of Rome, and he neglects the fact that pagan Rome had unholy alliances with the kingdoms it governed, unholy because they were built on paganism and emperor worship. Now, if you want to cite the example of the Concordat with Nazi Germany, had nothing to do with the atrocities that the, that the Nazi regime committed. What it was is that the Nazis, as vermin enemies of Christianity, were a terrible threat to the Catholic Church in Germany. And the Pope, well, it was Pius XII at the time before he became Pope, negotiated a concordat which was aimed at protecting the rights of the Church and the Catholic believers in Germany, not to give credibility or support to the uh, Nazi regime, a concordat that the Nazis continually violated to the point where Pius XII in 1938 issued an encyclical called Mit Brennede Sorge with burning hearts in protest against Nazism and the formal condemnation of the Nazi regime policies. Uh, that encyclical had to be smuggled into Germany and read at every pulpit before it was actually formally released by Rome to ensure that the people in Germany would, would uh, hear the message, the anti-Nazi message. Okay, clothed in purple and scarlet, Hunt ignores the liturgical meaning of purple and red in Catholic symbolism. The purple, actually, St. Genesis says that the purple, the colours, if I can find it here, purple and scarlet, okay. See, this is what St. Genesis says about purple and scarlet. In Apocalypse 17.4, we see the whore of Babylon decked in expensive garments and jewellery. She wears clothes of purple and scarlet, which are symbols of royalty, political power, and indicate that she influences the upper echelons of societies such as governments, politics, religions, communications, commodities, and the arts and sciences. Commodities in particular, that's why you read in chapter 18, when the whore falls, when Babylon falls, all the merchants and traders and seafarers are crying. Because this power, this uh, evil power, was a political and economic power. Rome fit both. She wears gold and precious stones, showing that she hobnobs with the rich and famous and has great wealth to pay her slaves to do her bidding and spread her seductive enticements. This is a woman who has connections, as the saying goes. So powerful is she that she rides the beast, who himself is scarlet-coloured, showing thus his sultry nature. This is the mystery the angel is trying to tell John. The mystery is that the whore and the beast work together 
It is a worldwide conspiracy. She controls a spiritual seduction. He had, she controls a spiritual seduction, that's the whore. He has the material and physical power to get the job done. Now, and Catholic answers will then say, okay, yeah, it agrees with that, but the conspiracy is the beast Rome and the whore, the beast here, the animal, and the whore sitting on the animal is apostate Jerusalem. Conspiring, yes, the spiritual power, apostate spiritual power with the political and economic power conspiring to persecute the early Christians. Okay, just continuing here. Purple symbolizes repentance in Catholic symbol symbolism and red honors the blood of Christ in the Christian martyrs it is appropriate for Catholic clerics to wear purple and scarlet if for no other reason because they have always been liturgical colors of the true religion since ancient Israel uh, we read that God commanded that scarlet yarn and wool be used in liturgical ceremonies Leviticus 14 Leviticus 14 uh, uh, chap okay, uh, Leviticus chapter 14 verses 4, 6, 49 to 52 and Numbers chapter 19 verse 6 and that God commanded that the priest's vestments in ancient Israel be made with purple and scarlet yarn in any case purple and red are not the dominant colours of Catholic clerical vestments certainly not the popes the popes is white all priests wear white including bishops and cardinals when they are celebrating mass even the Pope does. Now, probably in my opinion, the closest point that would of the ten that the Catholic Church does satisfy is the point about great wealth. Well, the Catholic Church can't help that. It's the international organisation that's been in existence for 2,000 years, and the, much of that, the vast majority of that wealth was donated by people. My point is, is that for the Catholic Church to be the hall or the and the Pope the Beast, the Catholic Church has to satisfy all ten points, not just one. Plenty of institutions that are evil, that have a lot more wealth than the Catholic Church. The United States economy is 17 trillion. That's its GDP two years ago. China's two years ago was four trillion. A lot more wealth than the Catholic Church has. Um, there are individuals who are not friendly to Christianity who have multiple billions of dollars in wealth the Islamic world through its oil wealth which is, denies that Christ came in the flesh has enormous oil wealth there have been communist states where the state controlled all the wealth in the nation much more wealth in, than the Catholic Church the hub of world, world commerce continuing in chapter 18 John sees the destruction of the hall and a number of facts are revealed which also show that she cannot be the Catholic Church for one she is depicted as a major centre of international trade and commerce when it is destroyed in chapter 18 we read that the quote the merchants of the earth or land weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those who trade on the sea wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, the great city, for all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. Pagan Rome was indeed the hub of world commerce in its day, supported by its maritime trading empire around the Mediterranean. But Christian Rome is not the hub of world commerce. After the Reformation, the economic centre of power was located in, in Germany, Holland, England, 
and more recently in the United States, Japan, and now China, etc. A golden cup. To make the whore's gold cup suggestive of the Eucharistic chalice, Hunt inserts the word chalice in square brackets, though the Greek word here is the ordinary word for cup, potarion, which appears 33 times in the New Testament and is always translated as cup, not chalice. Hunt does not acknowledge the fact that the Catholic chalice is used in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, a ritual commanded by Christ. He does not acknowledge the fact that the majority of Eucharistic chalices in the Catholic Church are not made out of gold, but other materials such as brass, silver, glass, and even earthenware. He ignores the fact that gold liturgical vessels and utensils have always been part of the true religion ever since ancient Israel. Again, at the command of God, Exodus 25, 37, Numbers 31, 2 Chronicles 24. And again, he uses a literal interpretation according to which the horse cup is not a single symbol. It's meant to be a single symbol applying to one power. But he makes it a collection of many little cups spread throughout the cities of the world. The, the title Babylon the Great just taking note of the time I've got two and a half pages here which should take about 20 minutes and I won't refer much to St. Janice anymore just to keep it brief if you want to have a look at St. Janice later I've marked his book with labels so you can perhaps read what he has to say on certain topics like purple and scarlet, whore and beast together mark of the beast, 666 Babylon Seven Mountains Kings, Five Kings Past and Present, Latter Day Hall, things like that if you're interested. Babylon the Great. While the rest of her description could refer to a number of things, the symbolic designation Babylon narrows it down to two, pagan Rome or apostate Jerusalem. It is well known that both scripture and the early church fathers referred to pagan Rome as Babylon. However, there are also indications in Revelation that the whore might be apostate Jerusalem. There is one special reference to the great city, quote, great city in Revelation. That passage is chapter 11, verse 8, which states that the bodies of God's two witnesses, quote, will lie in the street of the great city, which is allegorically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. End quote. The great city is symbolically called Sodom, a reference to Jerusalem. Symbolically called Sodom in the Old Testament, for example, Isaiah 1.10, Ezekiel 16.1-3. We also know that Jerusalem is the great city of Revelation 11.8 because the verse says it was, quote, where the Lord was crucified. Mother of harlots. Hunt says the following. Sadly enough, the Roman Catholic Church fits that description as precisely as she fits the others. Much of the cause is due to the unbiblical doctrine of priestly celibacy, which has, quote, made sinners of the clergy and the harlots out of those with whom they secretly cohabit. And many have sadly been that way. But that's not because they follow church teaching, because they deny church teaching in their daily lives. Priestly celibacy is a discipline. It's a discipline especially of the Western Church. 
It can scarcely be unbiblical since Hunt himself says, quote, the great apostle Paul was a celibate and recommended that life to others who wanted to devote themselves fully to serving Christ. And no one's forced into it in the Catholic Church. You have seven years to determine whether you are to have, pursue that vocation or not. No one is certainly ordained against their will in that case. Hunt has again lurched to an absurdly literal interpretation. He should interpret the harlotry of the whore's daughters as the same as their mother's harlotry, which is why she is called their mother in the first place. This would make it a spiritual or political fornication or the persecution of Christian martyrs. Instead, Hunt gives the interpretation of the daughters as literal earthly prostitutes committing literal earthly fornication so Hunt's interpretation is uh, the reasons why he gives the Catholic Church is through an overly simplistic literal interpretation of what fornication is it's what we said earlier the political power exporting its false religion to its subjects and Rome did that through exporting imposing or requiring emperor worship throughout its empire Shed 9 sheds the blood of saints persecuting apostles and prophets. This is interesting here as well. <clears throat> this section of the book abounds with historical errors, not the least of which is Hunt's implication that the church endorses the forced conversion of nations. It never has. And forced conversions happen through abuse, not through following church teaching. Charlemagne engaged in it. He only stopped when he would, the church compelled him under moral pressure to desist from beheading Saxons and forcing them to convert, etc. The church emphatically does not do so. It has condemned forced conversions as early as the third century and has forced, formally condemned them on repeated occasions as we read in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph, paragraphs 160, 1738, 1782, 2106, 2107. But pagan Roman apostate Jerusalem do fit the description of a city drunk with the blood of saints and martyrs of Jesus. And since they were notorious persecutors of Christians, the original audience would have automatically thought of one of these two as the city that persecutes Christians. Not an undreamed of Christian Rome that was centuries in the future. When the whore falls, we read, quote, Rejoice over her, O heaven, Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and all who have been killed on the earth. This shows that the whore, that's chapter 18, verses 20-24, this shows that the whore persecuted not just Christians, but apostles and prophets. Apostles only existed in the first century, since one of the requirements for being an apostle was seeing the risen Christ. Prophets existed as a group only in the Old Testament, and in the first century. So which powers could have possibly persecuted prophets and apostles St John the Baptist and the apostles were all martyred by Herod Agrippa no sorry Herod Antipas and during the Roman persecutions 
The Catholic Church, if you believed it exists in the first century, wasn't doing that work. And many Protestants wouldn't accept that the Catholic Church even existed in the first century, but rather was a creation of Constantine. Since the whore persecuted apostles and prophets, the whore must have existed in the first century. This totally demolishes the claim that Christian Rome or Vatican City is the whore. Rome was not a Christian city at that time, and Vatican City did not even exist, so neither of them could be the whore. Furthermore, fundamentalists continually claim that Catholicism itself did not exist in the first century, meaning that based on their own argument, Catholicism could not be the whore that persecuted prophets and apostles. Only ancient pagan Rome or apostate Jerusalem could possibly be the whore that did that. Um, as for persecuting and putting to death 50 to 95 million Christians, presumably Bible-believing Christians in its history, it's a total fabrication. The numbers we're dealing with are the Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition formally put to death in 340 years 3,000 people. Nine a year. Where do we get 50 to 95 million from? There is no reputable historical work that can prove that. There's no evidence. Give me the names, give me the times, give me the dates, give me the events, give me the persecutors, give me the martyrology of millions of innocent Christians martyred by the Catholic Church. Millions, tens of millions, nearly a hundred million. It doesn't exist. It is a total and utter fabrication. Fox's Book of Martyrs, 270-odd, 278. There's a very good book written by an ex-Protestant who became a Catholic um, called The History of the Reformation in England, Scotland and Ireland. I forget the name of the author, sorry. You might know it's someone here. Um, most of those killed in the reign of Mary were not religious, most, not all, certainly a number of them were religious martyrs, but not all the 278 in the five years reign of Mary Tudor were Protestant or even religious. They were put to death for political or petty or um, civil crimes, not religious crimes. They weren't real religious martyrs at all. And in the wars of religion in France, Protestants and Catholics were both killed on, on either side. When it comes to religious persecution, wherever the Lutherans or Zwinglians or Calvinists gained the ascendancy, or in England, everywhere they gained the ascendancy, religious freedom was denied totally to Catholics. The Mass was abolished immediately. In England, the, the laws against the Catholic faith were the most horrendous in, in the history of Christianity. To, be, to even be caught with a priest in your home was automatic uh, execution. To be a priest in England was automatic execution. To say mass in England was automatic execution. These laws have subsisted for a couple of hundred years before they began to be watered down from the 18th century onwards. But it's, it's unfair to say that only the Catholic Church persecuted. It happened both sides. It was the nature of the society at the time. And we're certainly not talking about millions, maybe thousands, but certainly not millions. 
the vicarious filiadeimeth, the vicar of the Son of God. This can be dismissed outright. The Pope has no such title, never has. The Pope has never had such a title on any papal tiara. It's a pure fiction, a creation, a myth out of thin air. These are the official titles of the Pope. Bishop of Rome, Vicar of Jesus Christ. Now that's not the same as Vicar of the Son of God because we're dealing here with... It has to be, to be 666, it has to be the specific words vicarious filia dei, Vicar of the Son of God. Son of God, not Vicar of Jesus Christ. To, for the Latin letters of vicarious filia dei to add up to 666, it has to be Vicar of the Son of God. The Pope has no such title, never had. Vicar of Jesus Christ, yes. Successor of St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, Patriarch of the West, which Pope Benedict actually abolished about a year ago, because he said geographically it's irrelevant now. Primate of Italy, Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman Province, Sovereign of the Vatican State, Servant of the Servants of God. None of those titles add up to 666. The only one that does, Vicar of the Son of God, has never been his title. It's a pure myth, a, a fiction created out of thin air. Uh, 666, the interpretations, uh, Robertson Janus goes into it in detail. Capaganza says the following, the beast considered as a person is specifically identified as one of the line of seven kings who reigned sequentially. In early Christian history, did pagan Rome have such a line? Yes, the Caesars. Was there a cult of worship around them? Again, yes. Did any of them have the number 666? One did. Revelation 13:18 invites the reader to calculate the number of the beast by adding up the numeric value of the person's name, since in ancient languages the letters of the alphabet doubled as numbers. When one adds up the numbers for Nero Caesar in Hebrew and Aramaic, it comes up to 666. Did Nero persecute Christians? He certainly did was responsible for the execution of Saints Peter and Paul. Such an, and, and of course, uh, required divine worship. Such an interpretation would make much of the book of Revelation apply to the past as well as the future. Okay, uh, that comes up now to our conclusion. Basically, to sum it up, for the Pope to be the Antichrist and the Catholic Church to be the whore, it has to satisfy all ten conditions that Hunt outlined. From my putting together of this evidence here from Catholic Answers and St. Genis, there's only one of those ten that... You were listening to Robert Haddad discussing the topic, the Vicar of Christ or Antichrist, for Lumen Verum Apologetics on cradio.org.au could be applicable to the Catholic Church, and that is its wealth. All the others just don't add up. Just to remind us again, the, to the very first point we made earlier in tonight, is that the Antichrist has to be someone who has political power and professes a religion that denies that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God who came in the flesh. No pope has ever taught that. No pope does teach that. And if any pope were to come into f in the future to teach that, well, they would be antichrist, but certainly not as a Catholic, but as an apostate. 
So no Catholic can be the Antichrist because to be Catholic you have to believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh as the Son of God. Conclusion, no other church gets accused of being the whore, only the Catholic Church. So why is the bride maligned as, and speaking as a Catholic here, so why is the bride maligned as the whore? Well, Jesus himself was maligned. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Matthew 10.25 given, Even given the identification of the Antichrist with the beast, the Pope is the last person who would fit the biblical requirements for being the individual Antichrist or any Antichrist. The epistles of John clearly indicate that the Antichrist is one who denies that Christ has come in the flesh. However, the basis for the Pope's position that is vicar of Christ in the church is that Christ has come in the flesh and has ascended to heaven, leaving the successor of Peter as his vicar or representative on earth. For the Pope to deny that Christ has come in the flesh would be to undercut the basis of his own authority. Such a person or Pope would not be Catholic. Since no Pope historically has made such claims, it is easily verifiable that no Pope in history has been an Antichrist. Maybe Antichrist in their personal lives. I've given talks on bad Popes, I can repeat that later. Those have been personally immoral in their own lives. As each and every one of us, when we sin, are in a sense Antichrist by our personal sin. But not the Antichrist, and that's the topic tonight, the Antichrist. Neither will any future Pope be inclined to deny the base of his position. The anti-papal argument simply is not credible. If not the whore, then what is the Catholic Church? If Protestants are prepared to admit that the Pope is not the Antichrist and that the Catholic Church is not the whore of Babylon, then the questions may be posed, then what are they? And how can they be otherwise explained? Most Christians are and always have been members of the Catholic Church. The Pope and the Catholic Church are too central to historic Christianity to be dismissed as simply an accident. They must have some part in God's plan. But if they are not the Antichrist and the Whore of Babylon, then the logical alternative is to perhaps invest to consider that they are actually the vicar, vicar of Christ and the bride of Christ. At least if you're not going to believe it, at least consider the arguments in favour of that. Alright, well that formally ends tonight's presentation. I hope I haven't left you too confused. It's actually more complex than this. Because, um, I mean, I didn't present this tonight. If you want to read this, you'll get it much more detail. Did you refute the argument of Babylon as forward by? Babylon the Great, according to Count the Gans's presentation, and, and I didn't go into the St. Genis one, Babylon the Great, uh, the great city, I'll read this paragraph again. The great city, quote, is symbolically called Sodom, a reference to Jerusalem, symbolically called Sodom in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 16, Isaiah 1. We also know Jerusalem is the great city in Revelation 11.8 because the verse says it was where the Lord was crucified. Uh, that's Cabagansa's interpretation. If I want to read this one here, and I didn't do that, but since you've asked the question, I'll... St. Genesis certainly has a different interpretation of Babylon. He says the following. Um, 
Thus, if there is a more specific historical apocalyptic relevance to the title Whore of Babylon, it could be said that Apocalypse 17.18 is prophesying that Israel, who was divorced from God for her whoredom and sent to ancient Babylon, would emigrate to Babylon and remain in her whorish state, from which she would come forth once again in the last days as one of the main persecutors and evil influences upon the church. Whatever the precise application, John's vision of the whore of Babylon is worldwide in scope. The anti-Christian forces have one thing in common, to weaken the church and entice her members into sin and apostasy. This is precisely why Jesus' warnings to the seven churches of Asia Minor are so stern and foreboding. He is warning them in no uncertain terms about the whore of Babylon who is seeking to lead them into spiritual fornication. Uh, Then it goes on, I read the other bit before about how it connects the whore of Babylon decked in expensive garments and jewellery, and I read that, the purple and scarlet, the symbols of royalty and indicates the influence of the upper echelons of society. I read that already I was before. thinking in terms of the previous talk where you mentioned that St. Peter was referring to Babylon as a person. Yeah, but see, what are they referring to as Babylon? Pagan Rome. Oh. Not the Catholic Church, you see. I mean, you know... So Peter's not Peter's not writing saying, listen, I'm writing here from you know Vatican Central, you know, you know the people in white robes around me, and you know I'm sticking out this epistle. He was, he, the code Babylon there referred to pagan Rome. Okay. Yeah. What, uh, this is the reformers place upon the whore of Babylon and the um, the anti the beast and Christ as being the pope and the church. Did they use that a lot? Uh, look, in the early days when it was really hot, the Reformation, as I read already, the, the Westminster Confession and the, uh, I'll just read them again, the Book of Concord, these were like, these are long-winded articles of faith, okay? They're not short creeds, they're the statements of the Lutherans and the Calvinists, um, and they were taken as their like articles of faith. Like the Anglicans had the 39 articles, and the Westminster Confession was for the Presbyterians, and and the Book of Concord for the Lutherans. So to include those paragraphs there meant that they took it very seriously. Okay, um, and so. It was, it was, as I said, as I read already, it was necessary for them to have to explain away what was this thing that they were breaking away from and encouraging other people to break away from. They're not going to, in all, in all consistency, going to say, look, this is the real church, but you know, we encourage us to form our own. They're not going to do that. You know, they have to, you know, discredit this organisation that it's huge, dominant, powerful. Okay, so they really did believe it. Today, there's still many people who really do believe it. You know, I only mentioned a few. I mean, it's something that's I hardly delved into. Uh, I didn't even delve in, at all into the Seventh Day Adventist arguments that you know the Pope is the Antichrist because he reigns for 1260 days. Okay. Well, that's actually 1260 years, according to the Adventists, when the Papal Antichrist reigned from, guess what, 538, when they got their grant of land from some, they got, uh, they got official secular authority from the time of Justinian in 538, until when, 1260, add 1260 years to 538, we come to 1798. And what happens in 1798? 
the Napoleon captures one of the popes, it's um, Pius VI, and he dies in prison. And that's the formal end of the 1260 days. That's the reign of the Antichrist. Well, it's a silly argument for many reasons, because the Antichrist is supposed to be reigning at the end of the world. It doesn't end a couple of hundred years short. Secondly, as if Pius VI was the first pope to ever be killed. And many popes were killed. They had, um, in the early church, Telesphorus, was Pope Bishop of Rome, was put to death in the reign of um, uh, what's it? Antoninus Pi or Hadrian. Hadrian. And then you had uh, Pontian in the time of Emperor Decius. It goes on and on and on. And you had popes murdered by intrigue and assassination and poisoning in the 8th and 9th century. As if Pius VI, what happened to him, was the first time it ever happened to anybody, any pope. And even Pius VII, who succeeded him, was captured by Napoleon as well and put in prison. But to say that the, the, the reign of Antichrist ended with Pius VI, we've had, uh, what, let's be serious here, more than 200 years of popes continuing since then. Well, how do you fit that into the equation? And the Jehovah Witnesses are very strong on it. You can't go to a Pentecostal church and be fervent in a Pentecostal church and serious in a Pentecostal church without being told that as well. You know, um, as not every Protestant believes it. I mean, the challenge I put here at the end is, is has to be, you know, you have to go spend years to take up and study the challenge I just read now. But people like, for example, our friends the Jensens who run the Sydney Anglican Diocese here in Sydney, they've never said that the Pope is the Antichrist. They don't. They they, they take a third position. He's not the Antichrist. He's certainly not the vicar of Christ. He's just another fraud heretic who doesn't believe in faith alone, scripture alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. Right? Um, you know, a false, false gospel, but not the Antichrist. I mean, there are plenty of people who are running false gospels out there, but they're not the Antichrist. Okay, they're heretics. Okay, that would be the third option. But let's get serious. I mean, honestly, this is what gnaws at me a little bit. You've got people saying, here's the Antichrist, he's coming in July. There'll be probably people, like when the Pope went to Denver in 1993, there were hordes of them who came out to protest against John Paul II with banners, posters, placards, as, as he is the Antichrist. Now, this is the Antichrist that fights contraception, abortion, divorce, immorality of all sorts, and we cop it every day in the media. I wish they spent as much energy protesting against the Pope as they do against the media, Hollywood, political parties and philosophies, Islam, you name it, that just corrupt the world day and night, running riot, who deny that Jesus, that deny that God exists, that denies that Jesus came in the flesh, denies the family, denies all morality. I wish they spent as much time fighting them as they do the Pope. You know, pointing out, here's the Antichrist coming, the Antichrist is coming this direction, I'm sorry. You're pointing out that, that direction when the, Pope, the Antichrist is all around you. Um, this is what I'm saying here. Don't live as if the Antichrist is coming tomorrow. You live fighting the Antichrist that are here today. Then worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. 
That's what Christ says. Today's problems are enough. Worry about tomorrow's problems tomorrow. No. Don't ignore the problems today, waiting for uh, oh, the old Nick's representative to turn up sometime in the future. It might not turn up in your time. You might die tomorrow. I might die on the way home tonight. I'll be asked, what did I do to fight the Antichrist at Sydney Uni? You know, if people are going to say, you go to Sydney Uni, you know who the Antichrists are. And not the, the, the Catholics who are trying to live their faith and be obedient to the success of St. Peter, I guarantee you, it's the communists, the socialists, the homosexuals, the feminists, the destroyed family of love, of marriage, of childbirth, of order, of honour, of respect, of all authority. The Antichrist is against all legitimate authority. You go to Sydney Uni, you understand the postmodern deconstructionalism. Okay, fancy term, but this is the core of what's destroying modern civilization. The rejection of all legitimate authority coming from a revolution that spans many centuries. There's been a continuous logical sequence of revolutions. Old Nick's the master of all of them. Okay? Um, you know, they've been celebrating 40 years since the Paris revolts. The Paris revolts are the Antichrist. If you know the very heart and core of the Parisian student revolts of 1968, it was to bring the sexual revolution to the fore, total liberation, throw off all authority, the state, the church, and the family, and let us do what we want, unrestrained, unbridled sexuality. It began because of the rules in the university dormitories that separated males and females and became a national revolution. That's, that's the spirit of Antichrist. Not a church that says, marry, no sex before marriage. When you're married, stay married for life. How many churches are out there that teach what Christ taught? What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. How many out there who say that teach that marriage is until death? And only death ends it. And then says, when you're married, be open to life. No contraception, no abortion, no adultery. And that's the Antichrist. My goodness, what an Antichrist. What do you describe all those uh, organisations that oppose what I just said? They're the Antichrist. Spend your energies fighting them. Rather than being silent on contraception. Never helping us when we fight abortion on campus. Making excuses why divorce and remarriage is allowed in your church. And then saying with the same breath, you're the Antichrist. When they allow contraception, when they allow divorce and remarriage, when they allow homosexual clergy to govern their churches, and then they turn around and say, we're the Antichrist. I'm sorry, really. This doesn't work. You got it wrong. Something's gone wrong. You know, this is prejudice. Because you disagree with Catholic teachings, therefore it has to be the Antichrist. Okay, I'm rambling now, so. <laughs> uh, look, uh, I've got another question here. <coughs> Why do you think John wrote, wrote Revelation in such a symbolic form? All of these things were supposed to be alluding to the time around which we're living. Is there a very good question. It's a very specialised question. Well, you see, isn't there also a, a prefigurement of the time to come? Like, for instance, uh, we are at a stage in the world's history where 
according to the New Age movement, which is a form of occultism, uh, you're getting the, the belief in the ascended masters, and uh, you're getting the belief that man is part of God, he is God himself, and that Jesus Christ was only one of the ascended masters, and yeah. that there is going to be one Well, St. John was certainly have painted that as well as in, under the heading of Antichrist, that type of mentality. Your question, is the first question, is a very good one. Um, I can't specifically answer it. As I said, I'm only an amateur here. Um, but what I, would, what I feel is correct about the Book of Revelation, it's not just about St. John's time, and it's not just about the final year before the second coming of Christ. It does deal with the last days, which are from the time of Christ's resurrection and Pentecost until the end of the world. How much of it has been fulfilled? How much of it is being fulfilled? And how much is it is yet to be fulfilled? I can't answer, but I believe we're somewhere there along the way. Okay? The whole last 2,000 years could not have been ignored, you know, in the revelation given to St. John. Excuse me, Robert. Yeah. You're forgetting the book of Revelation and descriptive language with regards to the sacrifice of the Yeah, well, I'm, that's another aspect which I haven't touched on, and I could have, but as I said, tonight's talk's not about the book of Revelation. But, but Tony's right there. That's another way of looking at it. The, you know, the whole idea of the the altar and the incense and you know the prayers in heaven of the angels and the saints and all that. That's just that's what Scott Hahn delves into. But I don't want to open that up now because it's, it's nearly ten o'clock and it's another topic. Um, but see, it's Anthony's point there is, is a good one, and. We also have to admit, and this might sound controversial to some people, but see, St. John's receiving the revelation directly from Christ, and he's recording what he's seen. But that doesn't necessarily mean he understands everything he's seen and recording. He's faithfully recording it, you know, but he might not understand it. Particularly, if you're, to go with your argument, if he's speaking about things in the future for him, thousands of years in the future for him, Okay, he might not understand it. But see, I do believe, for example, all these things like the plagues, uh, you know, one wave after another, uh, would refer to, in my personal opinion, one wave of revolution, one wave of philosophy after another that comes in successive centuries that have been hammering away at the minds of Western Christian peoples to the point that we've come where we are today. You know, one revolution after another. Um, the lukewarmness that came with the Reformation. The, the split in Christendom that came with the Reformation. The liberalism and indifferentism that followed that. The rationalism that followed that. The enlightenment which encapsulates the rationalism. The, the, the materialism of socialism and communism. And then we've got the... You know, what we've got now, postmodernism and post-postmodernism, whatever, and what's to come. I also see them as somehow must be there in the book of Revelation because they're impacting on the, on the faith, on the people of Christ, people of God, etc. And then there's certainly, 
you know, when Nietzsche says, you know, God is dead, we have killed him. I mean, he's got to fit somewhere into the equation of Antichrist. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics lecture by Robert Haddad discussing the topic, the Vicar of Christ or Antichrist. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.